priest collars, box turtles, and North Korea. All today on episode 5 of The Booterverse. Well, my friends, episode five is a bit of a humdinger. We have the first in our opener series with comedian Kenley Bidwell. He explains why priest collars are so effective in comedy. Our international reporter Vasily Krapov takes an unexpected detour, and Judy Scheinbaum answers some of your questions. Today on the Booterverse. Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by duct tape. Duct tape, when rope just won't hold that helpless victim. And now for news in my orbit. Move over, marriage equality. There's a new hot social crusade afoot. Concerned about recent trends in the sexual objectification of our nation's felons, inmate activists have banded together to form IROB, Inmates Repulsed by the Objectification of Our Brethren, a group that seeks to raise awareness about the issue. According to their spokesman, a man serving time for a meth conviction, his mugshot led him to receive disturbing correspondence from numerous women and one man, who apparently admired his remaining teeth in language that he found to be erotic and entirely inappropriate. The members of IROB have expressed a collective concern that the public sanctioning of such behavior could lead to widespread self-image issues in the prison population. They have cited a reported spike in eating disorders last month at a Mississippi County lockup. We just want the world to know that we were born this way. We can't help how we look, said IROB in an official statement. In music news, the response to a death metal band's announcement that they will play inside an airtight box until they run out of oxygen, local metalheads Fistulated Monkey have determined that they will play locked inside their local Licorama's beer cave until they run out of booze. The band says that they are conditioning themselves for the stunt by attempting to drink around the clock, and that so far they are doing as well as can be expected under such grueling conditions. They plan to pay homage to the band that gave them the idea by playing death metal covers of every song in Air Supply's catalog. And in animal news, a beloved pet who traveled nearly 1,000 miles to be reunited with its owners unfortunately has met with a sad end. Sadie the box turtle, accidentally left behind when her family relocated, managed to crawl the staggering distance in just over 12 years. She was then run over three doors from her destination by a teen who was texting on her phone. Sadie was pronounced dead at the scene after her former owner attempted to revive her by poking her with a stick. The police who responded were quick to remind people of the dangers of allowing box turtles to roam freely in busy residential streets. R.I.P. Sadie. Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by Camels. Camels. One hump or two. And now for a segment we like to call Back in the U-Ukraine with our Ukrainian foreign correspondent, Vasily Krapov. Vasily? Emery, hello. Are you daring? Vasily, are you there? Let me tell you, having to whispering now, are you listening to me? Hello? Vasily, we're here. We hear you loud and clear. What's, what's going on? Why are you whispering? Let me tell you, on the way back from Brazil, thing, bad thing happened. Plane had to take emergency detouring to North Korea. Vasily, did you just say North Korea? Let me tell you, thinking is very bad here. Ah, it okay. I feel like a thousand eyes watching right now, all from crazy leader. 
you're looking at me. Are you talking about Kim Jong-un? Emery, you cannot say his name. Don't, don't draw attention. It is crazy that I'm even able to be reporting from here. I am in the North Korean airport. It is also known as Crazy Town and or Camp. I hope to get the heck out of here. All right, Vasily. Well, we want you to be safe. Are you, are you safe? Let me tell you, I have to whisper very quietly, not able to talk in normal voicing. Vasily, why can't you talk in your normal voice? It is rule today. It is very bad. We happen to land in airport on Korean national holiday. There's a North Korean national holiday? Why do you have to whisper? Let me tell you, it is national North Korean library day. Okay, for you. Did you just say North Korean library day? Emery, listen, must whisper all the time for whole 24 hour. You must observe the custom. All right, Vasily, you are our international man abroad. You know better than I do. Listen, Emery, very carefully here. I do not want to ruffle any feathers, end up in unmarked car and or closeted room. I understand. Vasily, please be safe. Let me tell you, Emery, I am being as safe as possible, but it is crazy. Let me tell you, it's it's kind of like... Vasily, what is that? Vasily, are you there? Vasily! Let me tell you, Emre, I'm so sorry for that. Having to peeing in plastic bottle. Did you just say you had to pee in a plastic bottle? Let me tell you, uh, supreme leader whatever does not go to the bathroom ever, so no people on today's can use bathroom in North Korea. Did you just say that no people can use the bathroom? Listen, Emery, if they see me taking leaking in the bottle, I will be arrested. Please do not tell anyone this happened. Vasily, I promise we won't broadcast this until you're out of North Korea, but seriously, be safe. Let me tell you, I am being as safe as possible, but with not having to be able to go to potty and do other things, it is very discomforting for me. Let me tell you, sometimes I just feel like it is it is time for me to have to go... Oh, oh, hold on one moment. Ah, excellent, excellent. Okay, oh, have to be quiet, have to be quiet. Listen, having to sign off now. Please, I will check in when back from North Korea, back in the U- U- Ukraine. Goodbye, my friend. Vasily... We will see you later. This isn't goodbye. It is until you get back to the Ukraine. Yes, of course. Whatever you wanted to say. Listen, I am just trying to hold it for the next four hours before flight leaves. My friend, I wish you the best of luck. And that has been Vasily Krapov in what I can only assume is North Korea. Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by Wizard Staffs. Wizard Staffs. I don't know how this... Ah! And now for a segment we like to call The Last Lung with Judy. Judy Scheinbaum, the floor is yours. Emery, thank you. It is so good to be back, my dears. It is a pleasure. As you saw last week, I'm taking The Last Lung in whole new directions. I'm taking my moo-moo and I'm plastering it all over the facade. Or facade, however you want to say it. My first question is from Justin Actually, he's in Washington, D.C. He says, Judy, 
what do you think of the current Congress? Oh, my dear Justin. Congress is seriously as lackadaisical as one of my ex-husbands. Not the late one, but one of the ex-ones. You know what I mean? Seriously, I couldn't get the man to do anything. He loved seeing himself preen in the mirror. He loved hearing himself talk. But when it came to do something, the man would sit on his hands. Seriously, he would put his hand under his buttocks and just sit on them. I couldn't explain it. I couldn't get him to do anything. Seriously, the fastest thing he ever did was sign those divorce papers. You know what I mean, Justin? This next question is from Nadine in Houston, Texas. She says, Dear Judy, have you ever worn cowboy boots? And if so, how could we get you to? Seriously, Nadine, do I look like the kind of woman that would be seen in boots, let alone cowboy boots? Seriously, I'm not roping a herd here. Seriously, if I needed to lasso a man, I'd go down to the Piggly Wiggly, but I would never do it with frickin' boots on. I've got class. My three-inch pumps with reinforced steel heels are enough to get this girl through the day. Josephine asks, Judy, what do you think of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? Well, seriously, I haven't been uncertain about anything except Heidegger's bagels. My God, have you ever been down there? They put a bunch of schmear on it and make it seem like it's good. It's not. Their locks aren't fresh. If you wanted a bag of capers, you might as well find them in the Hudson River. This question is from... Oh. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, listeners, but seriously, this is going to be a good... Wait a minute. This question is from... Oh, my... Well, let me tell you what the question says. It says this. Judy, how's not smoking going? Comma. I saw you smoking out back of the apartment. What do you have to say for that? My God, I can't believe you would even bring that up. I stopped quitting smoke. I quit. I quit. Stop. Quit. Listen, I haven't smoked a cigarette in two weeks or something like that. Listen, quitting is hard. It's very hard. Do you know what it's like being me? I go through life with the anxiety of having a daughter who's not married. She's 37 years old and I feel like I'm going to die of a heart attack before she gets married. Do you know what that's like? Anything would drive a woman to smoke. It's that. Eliza, I love you, honey. But seriously, find yourself a man. Let's take some time to say if there are any young bachelors listening to the show right now. My daughter is very available. She's so available. She's like the McDonald's in Greenwich Village. Walk in and get yourself a double cheeseburger. Her dance card is so empty, it's like a synagogue on Sunday. We need to help her. Listening viewers, help her, please. I've been buying her things on the QVC. I've been doing all of these things for her. For what? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, sure, she's a professional. But what can I do? She says, Mom, I don't need your help. I don't need your advice. Well, seriously, you are the people who asked for my advice, and I love you for it. And you know what I love? I love this last question. It says, Judy, how do you do juicing? I said, listen, juicing, it's a phenomenon. It was a fad in the 70s. We're bringing it back. I love it. I like taking vegetables. I like taking fruit. But here's the thing. People buy these crazy contraptions made by these people who don't know what they're talking about. Listen, you take a ball-peen hammer, you take the vegetable or the fruit, and you just keep hammering it and hammering it and hammering it until you get your point across. Get those nutrients the only way I know how, with a big metal stick. Thank you, my dears, for listening. I hope you have a beautiful day, and as always, I love you. Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by braces. Braces, making you sound super sexy. Today on our fifth podcast, we have a very special guest. It's going to be the first of our series on openers. Comedians who open for other comedians who may be better than the comedians they open for. 
I'm here with Kenley Bidwell, and it is a pleasure. Kenley, great to see you. That's great to be here. I really like that intro, it's saying I'm better than the people that I'm not getting paid to be better than. Well, I didn't say you were. <laughs> I said you might be or some might be, because seriously, we've got some great openers out there. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, trust me, no one's going to have a higher opinion of themselves than me, so I completely agree with you. That's great. And you know me, so that's saying quite a bit, because I've got a pretty high opinion of myself as well. Now, Kenley, how did you get started in comedy? Well, I've always, I guess, been kind of an attention whore in general. Uh, I really always wanted to be on stage or something like that. Um, and I played in bands all the time growing up, and I kind of realized it was a lot easier to get on stage doing stand-up. I was never really a, a stand-up-aholic. I, I don't get on and never have get on Netflix and watch every single stand-up comedian or anything like that. But it seemed interesting to me, and I just started doing it. I... Uh, went up two years ago this month so that's where i'm at now two years ago this month so this is your second anniversary of being on stage exactly what was that first experience like for you uh, i think for most people it would be nerve-wracking it would be people get nervous and that kind of thing and i that never kind of bothered me at all i'm kind of a public speaker in general so that didn't bother me i was worried that i was going to forget something but other than that, it was fine, but it wasn't very good. I mean, I think anytime somebody goes on the stage their first time, they think it's going to be a bit easier or a bit different than it actually is and was. So, uh, But I really enjoyed it, uh, and I just kept doing it after that. I mean, it kind of it's kind of like basically doing a drug. You get high off of you know people laughing or getting reactions out of people in my case. Absolutely. What was the most difficult part for you starting out? Uh, the pushback I get is still difficult to this day, and it's, it's, it's always been the, the biggest part. I'm pretty polarizing, if anybody's seen my uh, comedy, and so it's really difficult when I see other guys going up and just getting laughs and then being content with that, and I would not be content with just getting laughs. I enjoy being polarizing and, and seeing reactions out of people. To me, that feels just as good. So the most difficult part, though, is dealing with the fact that some people in the audience are going to hate me. He is spot on the money. It is a bit polarizing. What makes you go to that sort of place? What makes that funny to you? I think being typical, uh, one thing I, I have always thought is these days, if someone wants to see stand-up comedy, they can log on to the internet, log on to anything, and they'll see an hour and a half of the best guys for free. I mean, it's such, such easy access to not just stand-up, but any movies or TV or anything like that. And I feel like people are so bombarded with so much information these days that you have to kind of shock them and be different in order to get them to pay attention. I think people think that anyone can be a stand-up comedian. They think if they're funny with their friends, then that will translate to being funny on stage. And I think we both know that's just absolutely not true. And even in the instances when it is true, as in someone is funny with their friends and they get on stage and they're funny— it doesn't mean that they have any point of view or that they are actually saying anything or challenging people on stage. I, I, the reason I think I don't like most stand-up, even from the guys that are really good at it, is they don't take many risks. They don't get on stage and wonder if someone's going to laugh or not. So if they're not taking a risk, I'm bored. I, I absolutely agree with you. You take a very specific kind of risk, though. You take a risk in the material that you're presenting. Some people take a risk in... Uh, augmenting their personality. Other people take risks by engaging the audience uh, in verbal tete-a-tetes. Mm -hmm. But you you have a very specific brand of material that you're offering the audience. Right. And uh, to me, if you by touching on such 
insane subjects. I mean, I'm getting on stage and I'm talking about you know child rape or something like that, and people are coming to the comedy club to to laugh. When they get me, they my goal is to have them think about something that is extremely disturbing and make them laugh because not only is that more challenging, it's more rewarding for me if I can get someone who didn't they aren't they aren't expecting to hear from me what they hear if I can get them to laugh at it or at least get them to be embarrassed that they're laughing while the other half of the table is judging them. That's a lot more gratifying to me than it would be just to get up there and do jokes about my in-laws or something like that. Absolutely. And you are very topical. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, you do child rape, which is a topic. Um, as, as bits, not the actual act itself. <laughs> indeed, yes. To see that on stage, you'd have to go someplace else. I think that when you're engaging with those kind of topics, Sarah Silverman does a lot of the same mm-hmm. sort of thing. She'll engage mm-hmm. in topics that are considered taboo, trying to make the audience think about it. So do you consider yourself to be an educator with your comedy? Or are you just trying to present material to make people ponder a subject that maybe they don't think about? I hope they don't think about it too much, but I think mainly what I want to do is to get people to relax. People are so uptight about being politically correct all the time, and I think there's way too much of that going on as far as, um, you know, if I make a joke about, uh, let's say somebody in the audience gets offended, and they come up to me after the show, and they say, you know, I can't believe that that happened, or that you said that because I was, you know, raped, or I was, and I don't want to pigeonhole myself into just rape jokes it's not just rape jokes that was just for an example but let's say that happened i don't feel bad because i didn't rape them sure yeah so, neither did i and if they're offended i'm sorry well i'm not really sorry you're not really <laughs> sorry and that's that's okay i don't think you should have to apologize for your material but uh, in one of our earlier episodes we talk about trigger warnings Mm. Is there or should there be a trigger warning for certain comedians? Or should people just know, oh, I'm going to see this kind of comedian. I should be prepared for this. You know, when you're in, let's say, doing an open mic night with four or five or half a dozen other comics, people don't really know what they're going to be getting. So there's a smattering of different kinds of comedy that people are going to be interfacing with. And so you get the people who are talking about their in-laws, as you said, and then you come up and talk about rape. And it's a little bit... I at first, uh, when I would get the pushback, I, I kind of had the the mindset of, oh, they just don't get it. That's their fault. I mean, I can't believe that they don't understand that this is a performance. This is, you know, this is a show. But I think the longer I do it, the more I understand that, and I understand, hey, they went out to go see a comedy show. They didn't expect to get me, but when they do and they don't like me, that's fine. But I guarantee there are, you know, some people at their table, or there's two guys or girls in the back of the room who connect with me so much, way more than they connected with any of the other ones. So I think when someone does like me, they like me a lot, as opposed to someone who goes sees a guy, laughs, and then forgets about them the next day, even if they thought they were funny at the time. Sort of a double-edged sword. You get really, really great responses from some people and not so great responses from others. I've done many shows where I would not get the laughs I was half expecting, but then after the show... There are 15 people that want to come up to me and tell me how much, how great they thought the show, my part of the show was, and the other guys weren't getting that kind of acclaim, but they got a lot more laughs while they were on the stage. Again, I think it's just because they weren't taking as many risks. People need to be invited to laugh. And I've seen your show. I like your material, but it's not necessarily something I'm going to invite my parents to go see oh, with exactly. me. Yeah, exactly. That would be a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I love my mom and dad, but dear Lord. <laughs> You know, trying to explain that to them 
and sitting through that, you know, it's almost like going to see a movie where there's nudity and you're sitting there with your parents and it's like, oh, exactly. Especially if they, if they knew we were friends as well. That'd be even worse. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I know. I know him. Mom, dad. I know he, he's a good friend of mine. Get, he'll give you an autograph after the show. I'll get you one. Yeah. Don't let him touch you, though. Don't let him touch you. You also use a visual medium as well with your attire. When you're on stage, you know, a lot of comedians wear all black or some comedians like early Robin Williams will wear really bright and floral uh, rainbow type things. But you have a very specific attire that you wear from time to time. Tell the audience a little bit about that. Uh, well, I, I, I have debated whether I wanted to do it in the first place. I wear a priest collar on stage. Now, I don't bring attention to it. Um, so it actually takes it usually takes people a few minutes into the set before they even realize I'm wearing it, and I think it adds to the character aspect of it on um, the fact that people are more likely to laugh because it's so ridiculous that I'm going up there and making you know terrible jokes, but I'm wearing a priest collar while doing it, and I, I think that it adds to it. And at first I didn't want a gimmick, but I think you actually kind of need something like that in order to get people to relax um, when you're doing the type of material I'm doing. You do need some sort of a marker to set you apart to make people be able to identify with you and what you really sort of stand for. And I think just it's completely ridiculous. I liked it because it's so silly. I mean, it's there. I could go up there and do the same jokes and get laughs. But if I'm wearing a priest collar, to me, just the idea is so silly. And there, there are really only two types of comedy that I ever think are really funny, and that's stuff that's really silly or stuff that's pretty offensive or, you know, like I said, taking risks. And so if I can incorporate both of those, that would be great. You know, horrible puns and things like that I think are hilarious. And I don't know why, um, but I do. And so if it's silly, it's good. If it's offensive, it's even better. My producer is the mistress of puns. <laughs> she can pun you to death. Lord knows I'm still hanging on. <laughs> are you going to continue to use that priest collar and that attire? Or do you think you're going to put that on the back burner and let try to let the material stand on its own? I have been not wearing it recently. I did not. I have not worn it the last two shows that I did, and the they both the both shows went really well. But I think that has more to do with me continually to improve as a comic in general. Um, and I think I actually am going to go back to wearing it. Like I said, I I think at at first I didn't want the gimmick, but now I'm just kind of like you know if it helps people relax and it actually gets them to laugh and it adds to the character itself, and I think it is very memorable. Um, so, and that's, that's the main goal is to, to be memorable. So. Absolutely. And in that memorableness, you know, if you're being quote unquote, so offensive with your material and you're being memorable, then people are really going to remember that they hate you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm sure that uh, for the 15 people that came up to me after the show, there were twice as many that walked by me in disgust. So. Absolutely. But I almost get more satisfaction out of that in general, just because if I any type of art, if you make somebody have an emotional reaction to it, that to me is what art is about. So whether it's positive or negative, I'm completely satisfied with it. Now that's a very interesting take because a lot of comedians would say their job is to make people laugh first and foremost. If you look at somebody like Kevin Hart, for instance, who is massively popular, the I compare the difference between me and Kevin Hart is Kevin Hart would be like the Transformers. He would be a Michael Bay movie. That everyone loves, okay, when I am a student film. That's really good, but it's still a student film. And it there are tons of people who are going to connect with that student film way more than they would Transformers movie. But the Transformers movie is going to make half a billion dollars. Well, and you're a very angsty, dark <laughs> student film. Yes, exactly. When you were growing up, 
did you think that you wanted to do comedy? Was this ever something that welled up inside you and you thought, I need to do this? Uh, I don't think so. I know that uh, when I was young, 11 or 12, my parents let me watch um, Eddie Azard on one of his HBO specials, one of his first <laughs> HBO specials, and he was so good. I remember even laughing, even though I probably didn't get a third of the jokes. Uh, his performance was so good. He was a transvestite, which I guess I just connected in my mind the the show aspect between the priest caller and the transvestite and all that stuff. Um, and he was, but he was very good. And I still remember, and I can still watch that same special um, to this day, and I laugh it's, every time. It still holds up. Yeah, Eddie's material is a, one amazing. Two, he does have a message, whether mm -hmm. you like it or not. Right. But if you're on either side of that divide, you can still laugh at his perspective. Right. Which is unique not only because of how he approaches the world uh, through his dress and attire, but also through his magnificent mind. I don't know that there's a comedian alive that's as smart as Eddie Izzard is. I completely agree with you. And I, you— you almost are laughing the entire time, but it doesn't seem like he's doing a stand-up. He seems like he's, you know, teaching a history class or just talking to you. But it's still so funny, so on point. I mean, he's, I mean, he's one of the best, if not the best, for sure. Um, and so I'm 11 or 12, and I would, I saw that, and I remember still sticks in my mind watching that. But I was more into uh, music and trying to be a rock star growing up as opposed to being a, uh, a comedian. But I fell into it, and I fell in love with it. I don't know that I had dreams of being a rock star. I mean, honestly, I don't look good in leather. <laughs> when one approaches the stage, you have to be very aware of what's going on out there, but also what's going on inside. You have to know your motivation. You have to understand why you want to do this. A lot of comedians come from a very dark place. I don't come from that place. Not at all. Right. I mean, not— and Surprisingly, that. neither do I. And that's what makes it great, because if people knew you or went out to have a drink with you, they would be like, oh, Kenley's the nicest guy ever. Right. But when they're interfacing with your material, that definitely puts a different facade on you. And do you ever feel as though your facade or your character or your material— I'm sorry, I'm just picturing you in leather still, so I don't think I heard any of that. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and I hope the audience is as well. Do you remember in the early 2000s, late 90s, that leather pants were all the rage for men? Do you remember That's that? Scott Stapp and Creed worn. That's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> oh, happened to Creed. Not, en like not enough. But then, but then they were like Christian rock, but then they broke up because Scott Stapp was boozing too much or something. Listen, I when people use their religious proclivities, <laughs> and I say that lightly, to gain viewership or audienceship, it turns my stomach sour. Oh, absolutely, but it works. And that's why people do it. It does. Why do it's you think that is? disgusting, but it works. I would never use sort of something that should be very personal to get money. Honestly, I, I just can't do that. Which is why I would assume most of the people who are doing it, it's they have other intentions other than what they would let on, for sure. I would think. And if not, they're just so misguided that I must feel bad for them. Right, to actually believe that you're doing something good with this thing that you're putting out there and getting paid ample monetary recompense. Especially if you're Creed. I can't imagine how much money Creed made in, what, 2002 or something. More than enough. Yeah. yeah. Let's just imagine. Especially for the music they make. I mean, the, the Nickelback of the early 2000s. Uh, the Christian Nickelback of the early 2000s. Yes. You know, I think of those two groups. And if they want to come on the show, I'd love to have them. You would I, get a lot of listeners. I would get... 
I would surprisingly That's exactly the demographic you're looking for too are Creed and Nickelback fans, I'm sure. Absolutely, because if people know one thing about me, it is that I am trying to troll the Nickelback and Creed fans. So come my way, dear children. My my fence is open and my flock is light. So come into the fold and ye shall be shepherded away from said music. I would not even uh, say it was too hard to get Creed these days. I bet you could get them on your show. I don't know what else they're doing. Creed, where are you? <laughs> I have no idea. I bet if you went to the Creed website, which God only knows what's their mountaintops, black, you know, background, lightning. Domain probably expired years ago. (laughs) No one even cared to look at it. No one noticed. Creed's expiration date stopped at 9-11. Is that kind of what happened? I guess. Down down the Twin Towers and their website as well. (laughs) Exactly. Why could the terrorists not have... Just hit Scott Stapp's house. (laughs) I was just going to... Creed's band practice. (laughs) I... I was going to say their website. I don't wish ill on the creators, but... But would you really be sad? I would... Ooh, I, sadness is a hard emotion for me to get at, if, my friend. If you if you turned on the news and uh, Sean Hannity is crying over over Creed's, or Scott Stapp's death and he announces, would, would you really care? Especially with Sean Hannity, because I'm sure he's a huge Creed fan. He seems like he would be. He does seem like... You know, when he talks about his construction business, you know that when he was building houses... He's quote arms unquote, wide open. Oh, homes wide open! <laughs> he was laying the foundations for houses and thinking, wow, Creed is really the theme song for my life. Exactly, mm. exactly. And and really, if you think about Sean and Sean's work, he really takes an arms-wide-open approach to his work. To everyone. He's Absolutely. so open to everybody. Especially immigrants. Yes, Speaking of immigrants, are you one? I didn't think we were going to cover this, but yeah. Excellent. Where do you hail you from, problem? my friend? A... I'm Mexican. Well? I didn't really want to bring it up. It's odd. Listen, do you celebrate Cinco de Mayo? <clears throat> That's offensive. I'm sure it is. Do you get offended that U.S. citizens, not Americans, because I know American, quote unquote, has a larger I'm just as American as you are. That's true. Absolutely. God bless you. Wow. He's flying the flag right now. Can we just get back to child rape? I feel out of my out of my uh, element now. Okay, fine. Yeah, <laughs> immigration was a little rough, but child rape, a okay. Yeah. Okay, great. So when you are with other comedians, do you find that your material engenders you to them? Do they like you because they're not as offensive as you are, or do they find that you need to stay a good distance away from them? Uh, that varies, I'm sure. Uh, I was surprised how everyone seems everyone seems to like it. However, I'm sure that there are people who go home and be like, you know, it's not he's not doing what I'm doing, or he's not getting as many laughs, so he's not as good, or something like that. But for the most part, uh, I've had several of them call me a comedian's comedian. So when whenever the crowd isn't laughing, the uh, comedians are because they kind of get it. So yeah, I mean, I, I have a well good reception. It seems like for sure. Do you find that comedians are more open when they're in a closed group, when they're talking around the table? There have been many shows, uh, The Green Room with Paul Provenza, for example, or there are other shows, Louis Show, which I love, sort of chronicles comedians interfacing with comedians, and it's very bawdy and very sort of debauched and sort of ridiculous. Well, it's not easy being a comedian. I mean, you, for the most part, or everyone I know who is a comedian, are there bright people who are into things that bright people would be into. So I assume anytime you get a bunch of bright people in a room talking to to each other, it's going to be a lot more entertaining than if you just went to a a diner and two 75-year-old couples hanging out. Absolutely, and that's a really interesting point that you bring up about brightness. 
Because there is an intelligence that's not necessarily book smart, right? Oh, absolutely. And you find, or I found, a lot of comedians have just graduated from high school or simply have a couple years of college maybe under their belt, and that's it. What makes comedians so intelligent and yet so so averse, perhaps, to sort of formal education? I think that has more to do with not necessarily intelligence and motivations. So a lot of comedians, including myself, it's difficult for me, and I, I do it, but I, you know, you have a nine-to-five job where you are, then you go home every day, but, and it seems like so many people I know are okay with that. They're not creating anything. They aren't doing anything creative at all, and they just go home and wait until the weekend, and then they do nothing then. you know. And it seems like when you have the personality where you kind of feel the need to be creating something, those are the types of people that are going to be comedians. And so if you have that desire, I'm sure sitting through class or trying to trying to write a book report doesn't seem very appealing to you as you know creating something would. Absolutely. And to me, comedy seems like it's an, not only an intellectual endeavor, but what you just said, it's a creative endeavor. So it's a creative intellectuality. And that's really very special and unique. Not everybody has that. It requires both sides of the brain. You can't just be left brain. You can't just be right brain. You have to be able to interface both with material and also, you know, intellectually, but then on the creative side, which is, which is a hard thing to do. And not everyone can do it. Exactly. And then you, on top of that, you have to be able to get in front of people and be ready to be judged by everyone in the audience as well. Exactly. Being judged by the very people who can't do what you're attempting to do. And this goes uh, goes back to something that occurred to me uh, earlier is when you were saying something to the effect of, um, uh, I think it was some whether we were confident people or you were a, a happy person, a normal person who seemed, uh, I, th- I don't think you used the word confident, but you're saying if someone went out and had a beer with me, they would say, oh, Kenley's such a nice guy. And then I would get on stage and be like, what, what is this? And I think that has more to do with – I think a lot of people get into comedy because they were different. Let's say they had a bad high school experience or something like that, and they're looking for that immediate gratification from a crowd laughing at them saying, oh, they do like me. When other comedians are not doing it for attention, they're doing it to say something. And so they don't mind if they get that immediate gratification, so they actually can take risks on stage. Um, And I think that's the difference between a comedian and someone who, and it sounds pretentious because I would not call myself an artist, but an an artist. Right. And at what point do you consider yourself a comedian? I mean, at what point would you Well, I actually don't use the word comedian, describing myself, because I think it sounds pretentious, and I'm not, you know, I I do still have a day job. It's not like uh, uh, I'm getting... You know my income completely from comedy or anything like that, um, but at the same time, I guess I should call myself a comedian. I I think that one I think it's used too often. People use the word too often, as as in somebody gets on stage once or twice and then they call themselves a comedian. They put it on their Facebook wall or or whatever. So uh, I don't know. But it, now I'm digressing. What what was the question exactly? No, digress away. It is a rabbit hole of ridiculousness. <laughs> And I'm glad we're going down it because I think it's very important to understand why this medium of communication is so important. I mean, it is the release valve for all the angst that is going on in society. I see comedians as having a huge role to play in how not only Americans, but the world 
gets over all the strife and the tension that's around. I mean, if you look right now in the news over the last week, we've got problems in the Ukraine, we've got problems in Israel, we've got problems in Russia. I mean, just everywhere there seem to be problems. And if there is no one looking at that and saying, you know what, this is horrible, but you can still laugh at it. Yeah, exactly. A great example, which you will not do that I mentioned before we started recording, was uh, when you interviewed Vasily. Uh, Vasily, yeah. I wanted you to uh, play uh, It's Raining Men after his interview, since he is from the Ukraine. Yeah, geez, the Malaysian Airlines, my God. I mean, it should be uh, the slogan, Malaysian Airlines, we'll lose (laughs) you. Exactly. Well, I'm pretty sure they didn't lose anybody on this most recent. They found them. Well. Over, you know, strewn across the land in the Ukraine over a couple hundred meters, but they're all there. Now, someone would hear— Those that weren't No, I mean, I don't know if they were or not. Now, someone would hear this and think, my goodness, they're— they're commenting, talking about the Malaysian Airlines and, and, and what happened. It's a tragedy. Of course it is. And I my, truly my heart goes out to all those families that were lost. But let's be honest. We, we have to make fun of these things because if we don't, it will rot our souls. That and I did not shoot down the Malaysian Airlines. I just want to go on record and say I didn't cause it. Right. And and by the way, we still don't know who did. Exactly. At this point, we'll probably know the moment the podcast I think, is yeah, I think we I think we have a good idea, but yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it was either the Ukrainian government or the rebels. Hmm. I wonder who might have a <laughs> random rocket just, I don't know, flying about the air. With a technology that Ukraine doesn't have, but their neighbor hmm. to, the, uh, to the east to does. The, hmm. I wonder, <laughs> now, who is, was that, was that China? Was that, is that? I don't even think China has that technology these days. You know, this is, I love, I love Russia. I love Russia so much because it's basically like a feudal society that is clawing its way back into the 21st century and they are doing a heck of a job. I mean, literally, it took them not but, you know, 14 years and they've already got a piece of Crimea. My God, Poland's next on the proverbial chopping block. I mean, if if we don't stop them, I don't know who else is going to. Not not in Eastern Europe, anyway. By we, do you mean the America? United States? No, I meant Mexico. Remember? Ah, Mexico. <laughs> That's right. How's the peso doing, by the way? I have no idea, actually. Mm, it's bad. <laughs> It's got to be worse than the dollar, I assume, which is also not doing very well. Not true. Uh, every morning I check currency valuations. As, a, as you do. As I do. No, and that's the thing. It's like what sort of person would get up in front of people, try to make them laugh, and yet gets up in the morning and does you know, currency valuations? This guy. Yeah. I'm I mean, not surprisingly not shocked. No. I, Seems not. very in character for you. Mm, yes. There's really nothing I can do bitwise, though, over, over doing currency valuations. It's sounds, it sounds to me like you just haven't tried hard enough. Oh, you can find one in there. Challenge accepted. <laughs> I'll be I'll be looking for it at your next show. Yeah, this is <laughs> Kenley Buildwall has challenged me to <laughs> develop a bit about currency valuations. We'll see what I can come up with. They've seen me already. They're they're not going to go there as soon as you say Kenley Biddle's asked me to do a bit about currency evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last thing they would have expected to hear. So why haven't we done a show together? That's my question. I don't know. We should. We should do that. It would be the most unique show ever done. Very polar. Well, everyone would be happy because you're going to have the people on my side, the people on your side. Absolutely. So polarizing, just come together. Now, do you find me to be, when I'm on stage, do do I seem like just a happy-go-lucky kind of a guy? Is that what I get? The the main takeaway I take from your sets are that you are very uh, easy to watch on stage because you seem comfortable and happy and nice and... uh, 
You seem friendly. Except if people heckle me. Then I they, c- they meet you in person, and it's just not. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, everybody you know, to each his own, I suppose. I had a, uh, I had a very hipster uh, heckler one time who tell, told me that my my if I was going to do a rape joke, it needed to be more pedantic. And luckily, I did not know what pedantic meant at the time. So uh, it needed to be more pedantic. More pedantic. Interesting. I wonder how. I wonder how you do that. I gave it much thought after I looked it up in the uh, in the good old Oxford Dictionary. Exactly, and uh, I, I'm just going to go in more detail. I figure that's good. More rape detail. That's, that's good. That's what he wanted. <laughs> that is <laughs> what he wanted. You were too too broad. You exactly. were. It was you know so too what? superfluous. You need to really get to the heart of the matter. Have you dug in more? Reading police reports from rapes on stage is what I'm going to do now. Mm. Next. <laughs> so exactly when did he insert himself un- unwantingly? And how, how how far how far where exactly on your and he put what where <laughs> wow that is <laughs> have you found that your material has gotten more challenging as you've gotten more comfortable on stage with your persona I think it's gotten it less it's actually gotten less offensive than it originally was but more thought out so it's it's less hacky as we say in the biz so you're you're able to kind of toe a line a little bit better you're able exactly. to keep them within a very specific place so they know they're not going to go th- way too far but they're going to go they're going to be pushed a what, lot right one of my favorite bits and I'm not going to sit here and do bits but one of my favorite bits essentially makes you uh, the the punchline is that if if pedophiles got uh penile enlargement surgery they couldn't fit it in another kid if they tried now that is ridiculous absolutely ridiculous but it's funny because you actually picture in your head a pedophile with a very large penis with a child now it gets laughs but people go home going man i cannot i didn't think going to that show i was going to picture a pedophile with a gigantic novelty sized dick but does it not do what we as a society want it to do? And that's the point. They, if they couldn't fit it in another kid, then we can let them out of jail. Absolutely. and, and save, I don't, mu- save tax dollars. Absolutely. And I don't want to deconstruct your joke because that's, that's not my place. <laughs> but it really is fascinating to me that you're basically towing a societal line on one hand saying keeping the pedophiles where they need to be away from children. <laughs> Or, or taking away their ability to do the thing they want to do. And on the other hand, you're suggesting a completely ridiculous, you know, sort of solution to that. It's a lovely joke. Yeah. We're going to take a bit of a break, and we will be right back with Kenley Bidwell right after this. Today's episode of The Booterverse is brought to you by Mustache Wax. When you want to have that, I just tied a lady to the train tracks look. We are back with Kenley Bidwell. Kenley, thank you again for being here. It's lovely to have you. It's, it's great to have me here. We were talking about the polarizing nature that perhaps your material has on people, but that material is your own. Has anyone ever tried to send you material, or have you ever used material that was someone else's? I'll tell you what, there is a joke that I found buried in the internet, um, in the horrible place of the internet that I go, and... It was the funniest one-liner I'd ever heard, and I'm not even going to do it here because it is way too bad for even your show or any show, all right? But I would do it on stage, but and nobody would know that I did not write it at all. No one would have any idea because, like I said, it was buried on the internet, but I would know, and it would bother me if I did someone else's material. And, in fact, I get semi-frequently other 
local comedians and even professionals uh, who have seen my bits will send me jokes via Facebook message or something like that. And they're like, hey, I can't do this joke because I don't know their reason. But they say they can't do it, but this sounds like something you would do. And they're very funny, but I, I can't stomach not doing any material that is not something I wrote 100%. Absolutely. And I love that you're a two-year-old comedic baby, <laughs> but that you're you're so well thought out in terms of the way you're approaching it and the the code that you have in terms of approaching an audience and approaching material. And I, I want to commend you on that. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, I'm nothing if not appreciable. The the notion that someone would use somebody else's material is sort of like the co- comedy sin. Right, right. right. Uh, obviously, Dane Cook got into some trouble for perhaps using a a bit from Louis C.K. Or Carlos Mencia stole everything from everybody. Yeah. Oh, Carlos. <laughs> but this—that's a really great point because when Carlos does a joke, even if it has a premise or maybe the whole joke is from someone else, he puts it into his own voice. Where do we draw the line? That's an interesting question because I I have wrestled with this myself anyway uh, as far as whether I should do not other people's material, but if they send me a joke, then they're not doing it. Should I feel bad doing it? Now, me personally, I it would bother me if I was doing a joke that I did not write, even if it was written for me. That do, doesn't well, necessarily have to Kenley, be everyone's opinion. Though. Kenley, when you're famous— and you will have a staff writing jokes for you. Are you just not going to do it? Are you not going to have— I think I'm going to pay people to write jokes for me, actually, and then I'm not going to do them at all just to make those people frustrated. And also give them a paycheck. This is what you do, though. Maybe I just you're, won't pay them. You're just like, a... Listen, I'll, I'll pay you when you give me a joke that I use. Ooh. And then I never use them, even if they're good, you just to a... torment them. Mm, I love it. Oh, so dastardly. <laughs> How does your fiancé put up with you? Uh, roughly around the time I proposed, I said that, uh, she doesn't deserve a medal for putting up with me, but she does deserve a ring. So, uh, I did in fact propose, ah! you know, <laughs> I get that question a lot though, because my fiance is, uh, she's the greatest person I've ever met. She's gorgeous and she's so nice and all these things. And when people meet her, like, she's so pleasant. She works with kids. I mean, she's, she's great. She's going to be a great mom. She's going to be a great wife. And so I get that question a lot on, you know, how does she put up with you or something like that? But I would go the opposite direction and say, what what's so wrong with being a little edgy or a little exciting? Because I, I think that a lot of relationships get boring when it's just two people content and talking about the weather all day. So uh, I think it, for her, I know for her it's exciting to be with somebody like me for oh, sure. I'm- and I will speak for her and say how lucky she is to have me. Well, I'm sitting in this room right now, and I'm getting excited. <laughs> I can see that. Well, well, who couldn't? A lot of people couldn't, a lot but of... I'm looking very closely. Where, Where is next for you, Kenley Bidwell? Where would you want to be? Give me a five-year plan. <laughs> Communist manifesto for me. Where's your five-year plan? What do you want to do? Five-year plan is to uh, probably be happy with whatever I'm doing. So just in general, if... If, let's say, next month I feel like not doing comedy ever again, which is not going to happen, but let's say that did happen, if that's what I want to do, that's what that's what I'll have. But I think that I'll land on my feet as long as I'm doing something that I enjoy that is artistic or something like that where I can express myself. Would you ever be able to make the plunge in saying, I'm getting rid of my 9 to 5, I'm doing it? You know, that's funny too, as, as we were saying 
earlier about whether I dreamed as a kid to be a comedian or something like that. And because I didn't, I almost, I still don't dream of being in front of, it wouldn't, it would be great, but I don't dream of that being my career. However, I think that the longer I do it, the more I enjoy it. So I, I could see if, you know, if it was feasible, I would totally quit my nine to five job and be a full-time comedian. Well, how can we make that possible for you? What can people do, the listening audience, what can they do for you to put you on that path? If they come to a show, they can relax. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> really, have you ever, dear audience, have you ever had anything so delightfully put to you? All you have to do for Mr. Kenley Bidwell is relax. And don't stab me in the parking lot either. Mm, unless it's a shiv made of child bones. <laughs> <laughs> that is acceptable. Which they would have only gotten from my closet, which is odd. Mm. Well, you know what? People are closer to you than you would ever imagine. <laughs> I've never been in Kenley's closet, and I'm not coming out either. So what is your particular brand of humor saying about you? Why did you choose that specific kind of humor? I think it's a pushback on—I uh, grew up in southeastern Kentucky. In fact, my uh, my hometown has more churches per capita than anywhere in the U.S., which I'm totally fine with church. That's not the problem. God bless you. The, the problem is the the uptight nature of the south southeastern Kentucky and the Bible Belt in general. As you know, I grew up laughing at things that were not politically correct, and I think that if people were just exposed to things— to more things in general they would actually be they would be more open to laughing at things that were not politically correct and that's not just in southeastern kentucky i think that's everywhere yeah i i also, i agree as well and i think it's a so you have people on the let's say political analogy that you have people on the far left and the far right and you wonder if the reason that there are fringes on both sides is it's a pushback to the other one so, say people on the far right, then you've got somebody who has to be on the far left to counteract that, even if they don't necessarily want to be. I feel like I'm on the fringe, just pushing back on purpose from just, from the mediocre or from the generic. But you don't seem like you're a kind of person who does something just because you can. Right, and it, well, that's why it has to be funny, too. So it can't just be—if I'm just going to go up there and be shocking— that's not fun and that's not creative and that's not artistic at all. So it actually has to be in the medium you want it to be. So if I can make someone laugh at something that they know they should not be laughing at, that is a lot more gratifying to me. And I, I think that's what makes makes it worth doing. We've covered a lot of ground here today, and I think his brand of humor is wonderful. I would recommend anyone going to see him at a show or, or, or visiting him in the virtual world. Are you on the internet, and how could people get in touch with you if they want to? Well, they could if they wanted to follow me on Twitter. I actually might be the only comedian who has a private Twitter account. Oh, my. <laughs> so if, if they request to follow me and I approve of them, they're in for a treat. Um, is that just at Kenley Bidwell? It is, yes. K-E-N-L-E-Y-B-I-D-W-E-L-L. Mm -hmm. There you go. That's right. I can spell Booterverse. They could do that. Uh, I'm not big on. I'm more on Instagram at the same at. So they could also private, and they could add me on Facebook if they wanted. I don't really care. I'll be friends with everybody. Well, everybody, it has been a lovely interview with Kenley Bidwell. Kenley, quick question: Where can they see you next? Uh, I am at Redmond's downtown Lexington on July the 31st, and I'm not sure what time the show is. I'm assuming it's at nine or ten. Well, if you are in the Central Kentucky region. Go to Redmond's, check out Kenley's site, follow him on Instagram because if 
if you saw what I see, you're going to want to. And by the way, I think there are pictures of his fiance on there. Again, with the fiance, everyone, everyone's so impressed by her. I'm such a lucky guy. Huh? You are. Wasn't she Miss Kentucky or something? Uh, no, she she was in Miss Kentucky. She was a finalist a couple times, but uh, she was never the the Miss Kentucky. Which you know what? I'm kind of glad about. Why is that? Because she would be so far out of your league that. <laughs> first of all, there's no one out of my league. First okay, of all. I, I apologize. No, second, I, I think that she is going, if she was Miss Kentucky, it may have held her back, and I think she's going to be doing some amazing things in life that have nothing to do with pageants at all. How can he talk about rape jokes and then say something so lovely about his fiance? The dichotomy blows me away. Kenley Bidwell, thank you so, so much, and you have listened to another episode of The Booterverse. A thanks to the production team, Courtney, Jacob, and Sonny. You guys are always as Judy says, gems. To our listening audience, thank you so, so much for tuning into episode five. We are so glad you did. If you can't get enough of me here, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter under the handle The Booter. And if you'd like to catch any of our earlier episodes, they're now available on iTunes under The Booterverse. Always remember, interstellar travel might be out of reach, but The Booterverse is always a click away. Mm-hmm.